even though I've, I've you know, I, I've, I've just been here for a little bit, I, I, talking to uh, your tutors and uh, meeting some of the students, I, I can clearly see that the tutors and, tutors and students here have been entirely faithful to the founder's vision of Catholic liberal education. That vision of liberal education was not an invention of theirs, but was the recovery of a form of education that had its beginnings in the Academy of Plato and reached its perfection in the Catholic universities of the Middle Ages. <clears throat> it's a tradition that dominated higher education up to the end of the 18th century when it was destroyed by the French Revolution and largely destroyed, uh, destroyed in France by the French Revolution and largely destroyed in the rest of Europe by the Napoleonic Wars. Now that tradition has always included the study of the dialectical method, a study that's largely omitted in modern schemes of higher education. And the purpose of my lecture tonight is to argue that dialectic plays an important role in liberal education and to give some explanation of what that role is. I will do that first by briefly explaining both liberal education and dialectic, and then I'm gonna look at two views about the role of dialectic, one that gives it too prominent a place, and the other which neglects it altogether. Finally, I will discuss the correct and moderate view, that of Aristotle, on the place dialectic ought to have in liberal education. Uh, briefly, the word liberal comes from the Latin word for free, so it makes sense to say that a liberal education is the education appropriate to the free man. Now we tend to think about this freedom in a superficial way. We think that a man is free when he's not restricted by rules, not hampered by responsibilities. We think that the free man has lots of free time and gets to do whatever he pleases. But Aristotle, living in a society in which slavery was just as common or perhaps more common than freedom, saw that the opposite was the case. Free men were burdened with responsibilities and didn't have much free time. So if free time and a lack of restrictions are not the marks of the free man, what is it that really distinguishes him from the slave? It's that the free man lives for his own sake and directs himself in his important actions. In contrast, the slave lives for the service of another and in the important actions of his life is ruled by that other man. A liberal education then is the education that is appropriate to a man who is free in this sense of the term. So since living, so, sorry, since learning is the point of any education, we need to ask what it is appropriate for a free man to learn. Now clearly, he needs to learn those sciences which teach a man how to live well. Ethics and politics, therefore, are a necessary part of liberal education. But since he lives for his own sake, he also wants to study those sciences which are worth knowing for their own sake, 
such as philosophy and sacred theology. Liberal education leaves aside disciplines such as engineering and architecture. Useful as they are, they're not worth knowing for their own sake, but only for the sake of the bridges or the homes or the buildings that they build. Theology and philosophy, both speculative and moral, and mathematics form the chief parts of a liberal education. But besides these, the ancient tradition includes the seven liberal arts, seven disciplines that prepare the student for the study of these highest things. And the seven are divided into two groups, the quadrivium, which includes arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, and the trivium, which includes grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Now, logic is the most important discipline in the trivium, and dialectic has a prominent place in the study of logic. In fact, in some versions of the tradition, dialectic was thought to be so important that the name dialectic replaces the name logic in the lists of the liberal arts. So let's take a look at the word dialectic now, which is related to the word dialogue and names a method of proceeding in intellectual inquiry. Uh, <clears throat> what I want to do now is I want to look at one of Plato's dialogues, the Mino, and I want to point out what I think are the main features of Socrates' dialectical method as demonstrated or manifested in the Mino. Now, uh, the Mino begins as you might recall, with Socrates, sorry, with Mino challenging Socrates to tell him whether virtue is teachable. Socrates replies that he doesn't even know what virtue is, an admission that shocks Mino and prompts him to offer his own definition of virtue. What does Socrates do? He does what he always does. He starts asking Mino questions about his definition. Mino's forced to modify his definition again and again. And until he finally admits, not that he doesn't know what virtue is, you know, he's not, he doesn't want to admit that, but he admits that for the moment, he's unable to explain it to Socrates. He blames Socrates and calls him, uh, 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 what was it, that fish? I forgot the name of that fish. Torpedo fish that numbs its victims. What I want to point out here is that, th that this dialogue shows us all the main features of the dialectical method. Now, feature number one is this. Socrates does not make assertions. He does not explain his own views. He does not answer questions. Socrates asks questions. But the questions are neither random nor open-ended. He asks an orderly series of yes-no questions for which he expects the particular answer, of course, Socrates, or that's very true, Socrates. Uh, <clears throat> so Socrates, for example, here's, a, here's, a follow, here's, here's an example from the Mino. So, uh, Socrates says, were you not saying, Mino, that the virtue of a man was to order the state and the virtue of a woman was to order a house? I did say so. And can either house or state or anything be well-ordered without temperance and without justice? Certainly not. 
Then they who order a state or a house temperately or justly order them with temperate and temper, the, the temperance and justice. Certainly. Then both men and women, if they are to be good men and women, must have the same virtues of temperance and justice. True. And can either a young man or an elder one be good if they are intemperate and unjust? They cannot. They must be temperate and just? Yes, Socrates. Then all men are good in the same way and by participation in the same virtues. And Mino says, it seems so. How can Socrates anticipate what the answers will be that Mino gives him? I think the answer, the answer to that question is this. Socrates knows what the answers will be because the answers are all in accord with the opinions men commonly hold on these matters. For example, it would be ridiculous to say that men direct the city well, but not justly. It'd be even more ridiculous to say that they direct it justly despite not being just. And it would be most ridiculous to say that men and women were not good in the same way despite the fact that they become good by sharing the same qualities. So the secret to Socrates' success is like that of a good lawyer. He only asks questions that he already knows the answers to. And he can do this because he is asking Mino to agree to common opinions about the matters at hand. So that's feature number one. Socrates asks questions. Feature number two, Socrates does not first aim to prove propositions, but more to refute them. For example, once Mino is convinced that the definition of virtue needs to be one thing, he offers the following account. Virtue is desiring fine things and being able to acquire them. Socrates then asks Mino a series of questions, and by the end he complains to Mino, so it follows from your own statements that to act with a part of virtue is virtue. Socrates is pointing out to Mino that his definition contains a vicious circle. By asking the right series of questions, he has elicited from Mino a series of statements which, when put in the proper order, provide a refutation of Mino's initial position. Feature number three, Socrates is especially concerned with definitions. For example, the dialogue begins with Mino asking the question, can you tell me Socrates is virtue something that can be taught? But Socrates deflects the question and says he does not even know what virtue is, saying, how can I know the property of something when I don't even know what it is? Socrates here makes the point that the knowledge of the nature of a thing is prior to a knowledge of its properties. And since the nature is expressed by a definition, when he asks Mino what virtue is, it, what virtue is he is asking him for a definition of virtue. 
This question from Socrates, which begins the real business of the dialogue, is the only open-ended question that he asks. And its answer, a definition, is the target of the refutation which the method of Socrates produces. Feature number four. Socrates can argue to both sides of the same question. After Socrates has convinced Mino that it's not pointless to learn, Mino insists that Socrates take up his original question of whether virtue can be taught. Socrates reluctantly agrees and first asks a series of questions which ends with the conclusion that virtue can be taught. But Socrates is uneasy and consequently he initiates another series of questions which leads to the conclusion that virtue cannot be taught. This makes it manifest the dialectical method can be used to argue, to argue both sides of a disputed question. So, to sum up the chief features of the dialectical method as displayed in the Mino, we can say first, the user of the dialectical method asks questions. But he doesn't just ask any questions, he asks questions whose answers are the common opinions of mankind. Second, he most often uses those answers to, to construct a refutation of the initial opinion of his partner in the conversation. Third, he refutes definitions, especially the definitions concerned with our most important conceptions about life and reality. Fourth, when he does argue for a position, he can also use his method to argue against it. So these four features constitute our first account of the nature of the dialectical method. Then we can ask ourselves, how important is the use of the dialectical method? Is it all important, as we're going to see Plato seems to think? Is it not important at all, as the modern philosopher Descartes seems to think? Or does its importance rank somewhere in between? What I'd like to do then is, first, I want to look a little bit at Plato and what he says about dialectic and the role it plays in the intellectual life. And then briefly also look at, so at Descartes and see what he says about that. And now, as, I, as I've just said, at one extreme is Plato. And in the Republic, he almost identifies dialectic and philosophy. He writes, in the same way, whenever someone tries through argument and apart from all sense perceptions to find the being itself of each thing and doesn't give up until he grasps the good itself with understanding itself, he reaches the end of the intelligible. And what about this journey? Don't you call it dialectic? So here Plato is talking about dialectic as the journey of the soul, the road over which the soul travels 
when it leaves behind the senses and grasps more and more the intelligible realities until it reaches the ultimate intelligible reality, the form of the good. When Plato compares dialectic to the other subjects studied by the guardians of the Republic, he concludes, dialectic is placed at the top of the other subjects like a coping stone, and no other subject can rightly be placed above it. If Plato's correct about this, then wisdom cannot possibly be grasped without using the dialectical method. But also, it seems a dialectical inquiry is all anyone needs in order to achieve wisdom. Thus, by Plato's account, dialectic is both a necessary and a sufficient method for the study of philosophy. The great modern mathematician and philosopher Descartes not only denied that dialectic was sufficient, he denied that it was even necessary. In fact, he argued that dialectic is an obstacle to the study of philosophy, that the dialectical method should be banished. And so, for example, in the rules on the direction of the mind, he writes, in the subjects we propose to investigate, our inquiries should be directed not to what others have thought, nor to what we ourselves conjecture, but only to what we can clearly and perspicuously perceive and with certainty deduce. For knowledge is not one in any other way. Descartes is here telling us that an inquiry beginning with what others tend to think, with what mankind naturally tends to think, can never help us acquire knowledge. Only an inquiry beginning with clear grasp of definitions, postulates, and common notions, and deducing unshakable conclusions, only that kind of inquiry is a way to knowledge. Only the mathematical method which we see used by Euclid succeeds while Plato's dialectical method utterly fails. And so Descartes wants to banish dialectic from philosophy, from a serious intellectual life. Aristotle, we're about to see, takes a middle road with respect to the dialectical method. We can begin to see this just by noticing that Aristotle wrote five treatises in logic. Uh, those five constitute over 15% of his extant works. And the longest logical treatise that Aristotle wrote was the topics, his treatise on the dialectical method. So clearly, Aristotle did not banish the dialectical method from philosophy. Yet it's also clear that he did not regard the dialectical method as the principal philosophical method. In the prior analytics, he explains what he means by a syllogism, discourse in which certain, certain things being stated, something other than what is stated follows of necessity. 
And then at the beginning of the posterior analytics, Aristotle tells us that one kind of syllogism, the demonstrative syllogism, is the principal method of obtaining philosophical knowledge. He writes, what I now assert is that at all events, we do know by demonstration. By demonstration, I mean a syllogism productive of scientific knowledge. A syllogism, that is, the grasp of which is in itself such knowledge. And at the beginning of the topics, Aristotle makes a sharp distinction between the demonstrative syllogism and the dialectical one. He writes, now syllogism is discourse in which certain things being laid down, something other than these necessarily comes about through them. It's demonstration when the premise, premises of the syllogism are true and primary or are such that our knowledge of them has come through premises which are true and primary. A syllogism, on the other hand, is dialectical if it reasons from opinions that are generally accepted. And he further distinguishes the premises of demonstration from those of dialectic as follows. Premises are true and primary which are believed on the strength, not of anything else, but of themselves. Each of the first principles should command belief of itself. On the other hand, the generally accepted premises are those accepted by most, by all, by most, or by the wise. And finally, in the prior analytics, Aristotle notes a further difference between the dialectical and demonstrative premise. The demonstrative premise differs from the dialectical because the demonstrative premise is an assertion of one of two contradictory statements. The demonstrator does not ask for his premise, but lays it down. Whereas the dialectical premise is the asking for one of two contradictories. That's a lot of text from Aristotle, so I just want to try to sum up his view of dialectic. Both dialectic and demonstration use a syllogism as defined in the prior analytics. But the character of the premises and conclusion of that syllogism differ. Demonstration lays down the premise, lays down premises that are true and primary. That is such that they command belief in themselves. It then produces scientific knowledge of its conclusion. In fact, Aristotle goes so far as to say that the grasp of the demonstrative syllogism in itself constitutes scientific knowing. And so demonstration is clearly the philosophical method par excellence. In contrast, dialectic has to ask for its premises. And the premises it receives do not command assent in themselves, but only because they are the generally accepted opinions of, of either all men or most or the wise. And our grasp of the conclusion of a dialectical syllogism does not constitute knowledge, rather it constitutes opinion. So 
Aristotle, like like Descartes, is pointing out for us a method other than dialectic for obtaining true philosophical knowledge. It doesn't ask for assent to its premises, but simply lays them down. It doesn't seek refutation, but chiefly seeks to establish conclusions. It does not argue both sides of the question, but only the true side. But unlike Descartes, Aristotle does not banish the dialectical method from philosophy. Instead, he writes a long book, The Topics, that aims to bring that method to perfection. What we want to see now is if, why, if demonstration is the knowledge of, is, is the method of philosophical knowledge par excellence, we still need to talk about dialectic at all. At the beginning of the topics, Aristotle identifies three things for which the study of dialectic is useful. Dialectical reasoning, although it falls short of demonstration, is still an exercise, he says, that sharpens the mind. And an exercise becomes more beneficial when we have a method of carrying it out, a method that this treatise supplies. Also, the possession of such a method makes the student, Aristotle thinks, better able to engage in any sort of discussion because it enables him to meet his discussion mate, his interlocutor, on his discussion mate's own ground. But most importantly, Aristotle maintains that the method laid out in this treatise is useful to the philosophical sciences. And he says this happens in two ways. First, the student trained in dialectical reasoning is better able to raise difficulties on both sides of any question. And he notes that the one who sees the difficulties is better able to discern which side is true and which false. Second, the student of dialectic is better able to discuss the first principles of the sciences. Aristotle writes, dialectic has a further use in relation to the first principles of each science, for it's impossible to discuss the principles at all from what is proper to the science, since the principles are the first of all things. It's through what is generally accepted that the principles have to be discussed, and this is proper and belongs most of all to dialectic. For, Aristotle says, dialectic is a process of criticism wherein lies the path to the principles of all the sciences. To to try to uh, sum up what Aristotle said there, about its own principles. And the reason is that a disputation requires an appeal to premises which are prior to the issue under debate, but there's nothing prior to the first principles in any science. So no science disputes about its principles. Dialectic, however, 
takes as its quasi-principles not the true first principles of some science, but what is generally accepted, that is, the opinions men commonly hold on such matters. Therefore, in dialectic, there is something that comes before the first principles of the science, commonly held opinions. And so the dialectical method can be used to argue about the first principles. A tough-looking panda bear walked into a restaurant and demanded dinner. When the waiter handed him the check, the panda pulled out a gun, fired into the ceiling, and began to walk out. The waiter called out, hey, what'd you do that for? The panda threw him a dictionary and said, look it up. So the waiter opened the dictionary and turned to the definition of a panda. A large black and white mammal of southwestern China which eats shoots and leaves. Uh, that's a terrible joke. Ah, yeah. But I think you guys need to relax a little bit, right? I can see some of you are already relaxing. <laughs> okay, so let me get back to my lecture now, all right? We, okay, so we saw just above that Aristotle says we can use dialectic to discuss and dispute about the first principles of a demonstration in, in the sciences. But before he said that the first principles of the sciences command assent, no, sorry, I'm, I'm reading it wrong. But, but earlier he said the first principles of a science command assent in themselves, not as the result of any kind of reasoning. That is, the principles of a science are self-evident. And uh, therefore, it seems, uh, sorry, yeah, I've got it. The principles of science are self-evident, and yet in the pot topics, he seems to be saying that the first principles of a science need to be disputed about. So there seems to be a contradiction there, and what's worse, the disputation about the self-evident principles uses a method, dialectic, whose premises are only opinions and so are, in fact, far less certain than the first principles themselves. It seems that if this is the main use of dialectic and philosophy to, dis to discuss the first principles, dialectic is really useless. The first principles are self-evident. They need no discussion. And Descartes seems to be right when he discarded dialectic from philosophy entirely. I think the key to solving this problem about the use of dialectic to dispute about the first principles is found by examining an unresolved difficulty posed by Aristotle in the second chapter of the Posterior Analytics. Demonstration, he notes, takes his premises statements which are true, primary, immediate, better known than, and prior to the conclusion. But here, but there, but there is a difficulty. And this is Aristotle. 
prior and better known are ambiguous terms. For there is a difference between what is prior and better known by nature and what is prior and better known to us. I mean, Aristotle says, that the objects that are nearer to sense are prior and better known to us. But what is prior and better known simply are those farthest from sense. Now the most universal causes are furthest from sense and particular causes are nearest to sense and thus they are exactly opposed to one another. And Aristotle sharpens the problem a little later in the same chapter. Since the required ground of our knowledge is the possession of such a syllogism as we call demonstration, and the ground of the syllogism is the facts the constituting the premises, we must not only know the primary premises beforehand, but we must know them better than the conclusion. Let me restate the problem as follows. The premises of a demonstration must be prior and better known than the conclusion by nature, simply speaking. Our knowledge of the conclusion requires that the premises be prior and better known to us since they are the cause of our knowledge of the conclusion. But, Aristotle says, what is prior and better known by nature is opposed to what is prior and better known to us because what is prior and better known by nature is farther from the senses and what is prior and better known to us is closer to the senses. Therefore, demonstration, simply speaking, seems to be impossible for human nature. And if demonstration should turn out to be impossible, then our worries about the dialectic, dialectical method would be pointless. Knowledge would be impossible anyway. Now, Aristotle, I don't think, provides a complete solution of this problem in the posterior analytics, but I think he addresses it in book six of the topics. Now, there, he lays out, well, and once again, we're returning to the dialectical method, he lays out the rules for refuting a demonstration Refuting a demonstration, one of the, the chief duties of the dialectician. And the chief rule for refuting a demonstration is the following. First of all, Aristotle says, see if your interlocutor has failed to make the definition through terms that are prior and better known. So it turns out that not only demonstrations must begin from things that are prior and better known, but also the terms of a definition must be prior and better known than the, than, the, than the thing defined. 
And that's because the chief task of the definition is to make its subject more known. But in what sense are the parts of the definition supposed to be prior and better known than the subject defined? Are, they, are the parts of the definition prior and better known to us or prior and better known by nature? Aristotle answers, it's clear then that the right way to define is not through terms that are more known to us, but through what is simply speaking more known. For only in this way could the definition come to be always one and the same. That is what he's saying is the terms in the definition must be prior and better known by nature than the thing, than the, than the thing being defined. Now we might think, as, we, as you, we might have thought before, that this requirement makes definition impossible. But Aristotle thinks otherwise. To solve the difficulty, he makes an analogy between a sound state of understanding and a sound state of health. He writes, perhaps also what is intelligible simply, that is by nature, is what is intelligible not to all, but to those who are in a sound state of understanding, just as what is healthy simply is healthy to those in a sound state of body. Now, let me draw out the analogy, simply speaking, because it preserves the health of a body in good condition. But for a body in poor condition, vigorous exercise can be harmful. That is, what's healthy, simply speaking, is healthy to the sound body, but not to the sick one. Aristotle's saying, similarly, what is more intelligible in itself is also more intelligible to someone of sound understanding to someone who is, as he puts it in another place, sharp-witted, but to someone whose understanding is not sound, what is more intelligible in itself is actually less intelligible to him. Health and being sound-minded, however, differ in this way. Most men are born with health and later fall into sickness. But no man starts out with a sound understanding and falls into weak-mindedness. Rather, for all men, what is more intelligible to them is first what is less intelligible by nature. Sorry, I want to say that again because that's very important. For all men, what is more intelligible to them is first what is less intelligible by nature. And so most men begin life unable to acquire scientific knowledge. But the case is not hopeless, because Aristotle also notes, to the same people at different times, different things are more intelligible. 
First, all the objects of sense. Then, as they become more sharp-witted, the converse. That is, Aristotle does not think that what is more intelligible, more known to any particular man, is always the same. Rather, he thinks that as a result of intellectual development, what is more known by nature can become more known also to some particular man. Every man begins with an unsound mind, but some come to possess the sound mind for which what's more intelligible in itself is more intelligible to that mind. I want to present a couple of examples to try to illustrate what he's talking about here. First, I'm going to talk about definition. Now, when we look at Euclid, it's easy enough to, it's easy to see that, uh, sorry, let me start on that again. In Euclid, uh, no, start on third time. It's easy enough to define a triangle as Euclid does, through its genus and specific difference, as a plane figure bounded by three straight lines. Most men, however, never reach such a distinct conception of a triangle, a conception of it through the principles of its intelligibility. Rather, their conception of the triangle is dominated by the sensible image of a triangle. Their intellects do not use the image to think about the triangle. Rather, their use of the word triangle and the judgments that they make about triangles are largely governed by the image of a triangle contained in their imagination. Now, nevertheless, the intelligible content we're talking about is always there. It's possible by, by an exertion of the mind to reverse the situation, to use the images of the triangle to conceive of it through its genus and species. And in this way, what is more intelligible in itself becomes more intelligible to a particular man. This is also true in the case of the propositions which are the first principles of science. We can begin to see that this is so by looking at the last common notion in Euclid, that the whole is greater than the part. Nothing could be more self-evident, perhaps. Even a toddler knows that the whole is greater than the part. <clears throat> well, yes, I, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about a particular, in, in particular about this. Uh, a toddler, you have a candy bar. The toddler wants part of the candy bar. You break off a little piece to give it to him. He is unsatisfied. No, he wants the whole thing. Why does he want the whole thing? Because he knows the whole is greater than the part. All right? Now your dog, you can like break off a little piece and throw it away, and the dog goes scurrying after that piece. He might come back for more, but he doesn't get worried that you haven't given him the whole thing because he doesn't conceive of the whole being greater than the part. <clears throat> now, let's think, though, about how the toddler knows it. 
the toddler has never articulated the proposition, the whole is greater than the part. He wouldn't even understand what you were talking about if you said that to him. What he really knows is that the whole slice of cake is better than part of a slice of a cake. That the whole candy bar is better than one bite of it. He does know the truth, but he only conceives of it in its particular application. It's always mixed up with judgments about particular sensible objects. The toddler's knowledge of the last common notion is not distinct and abstract enough to give that notion scientific vigor, to make it one of the true and primary principles of demonstration. But even after just one semester of Euclid, the proposition that the whole is greater than the part in its geometrical application is self-evident to you and possesses that scientific vigor. How did it happen? How did you become smarter than a toddler? <laughs> Think about your first several Euclid classes. You discussed, you argued about these primary premises. On what basis did you make your arguments? You could not have based them on the principles of geometry. That is exactly what you were trying to understand. Rather, the bases of your arguments were probable opinions, things which you were naturally inclined to assert, even though you didn't have proof for them. In other words, you began the study of geometry with a dialectical consideration of its first principles. Now, this solves the problem of the posterior analytics. The first principles of the sciences, when conceived through their principles of intelligibility, command assent in themselves. But these principles are either definitions and so become intelligible in the same way that the definition does, or are known as soon as the terms are understood and so their conception follows upon the conception of the definitions of the terms. In either case, the problem concerning our knowledge of the first principles is solved when we understand how, when something is defined, what's more intelligible in itself becomes more intelligible to the man of sound mind. It's because the man of sound mind can understand the definitions. It seems appropriate that the solution to this problem from the posterior analytics uh, should be made in the topics because it's the job of the dialectician to refute proposed definitions through premises which are commonly accepted opinions. The commonly accepted opinions are not more intelligible in themselves, but they are more intelligible to me most men closer to the senses, and thus the most appropriate starting point for pre-scientific inquiry. And in the process of trying to refute them, uncovers the intelligible principles 
of the subject being defined. Thus, the exercise of dialectic is what strengthens the mind of a man so that it achieves that sound state of, under, state of understanding in which what is more intelligible to him is more intelligible in itself. And so dialectic, far from being useless in philosophy, is a chief preparation for it. In fact, most of your liberal education is undertaking, undertaken according to a dialectical rather than a demonstrative method. This means your classroom discussions. So far from, being from uh, dialectic being banished from liberal education, dialectic turns out to be the largest, though not the most important part of it. Uh, one thing that st strikes me, I, I, I'm sure it happens on this campus just as it happens in Santa Paula, uh, we all get this habit as we're talking of ending every sentence not with a period, but with the word right. Right? That's what we do. What are we doing there? We are asking for the consent, the assent, sorry, the assent, of the person or persons we're talking to. We're being dialecticians. We're saying, I've just given you a very probable, reasonable statement. You, as a, as a reasonable person, ought to assent to it. Just tell me that you do. Now, we don't actually stop and make everybody uh, uh, <clears throat> actually say yes, but, but we're implicitly doing that all the time, okay? Finally, the two words you most want to hear in a lecture. In conclusion, <laughs> we can now sum up what role dialectic should play in liberal education. The liberally educated man aims at scientific knowledge and wisdom, and demonstration is the method by which one attains these in their perfection. But the liberally educated man is one who has made a beginning in these things and has not necessarily achieved wisdom in its perfection. And the beginning of acquiring these things is made through a training of the mind by which it is strengthened so that the mind frees itself from its domination by the sensible image and begins to conceive of things through their proper intelligibility. That is, the liberally educated man is one for whom what is more intelligible in itself has begun to be more intelligible to him. And since that happens through the use of the dialectical method, then dialectic must have a prominent place in liberal education. Thank you for your attention.